Nantucket was a town of roof dwellers. Nearly every house, its shingles painted red or left to weather into gray, had a roof-mounted platform known as a walk. While its intended use was to facilitate putting out chimney fires with buckets of sand, the walk was also an excellent place to look out to sea with a spyglass, to search for the sails of returning ships. At night, the spyglasses of Nantucket were often directed toward the heavens, and in July of 1819, islanders were looking toward the northwest sky. The Quaker merchant Obed Macy, who kept meticulous records of what he determined were the most extraordinary events in the life of his island, watched the night sky from his house on Pleasant Street. The comet, which appears every clear night, is thought to be very large from its uncommonly long tail, he wrote, which extends upward in opposition to the sun in an almost perpendicular direction and heaves off to the eastward and nearly points for the North Star. From earliest times, the appearance of a comet was interpreted as a sign that something unusual was about to happen. The New Bedford Mercury, the newspaper Nantucketers read for lack of one of their own, commented, True it is that the appearance of these eccentric visitors have always preceded some remarkable event. But Macy resisted such speculation. The philosophical reasoning we leave to the scientific part of the community, still it is beyond a doubt that the most learned is possessed of very little undoubted knowledge of the subject of cometics. At the wharves and shipping offices there was much speculation, and not just about the comet. All spring and summer there had been sightings up and down the New England coast of what the Mercury described as an extraordinary sea animal, a serpent with black, horse-like eyes and a fifty-foot body resembling a string of barrels floating on the water. Any sailor, especially if he was young and impressionable like Thomas Nickerson, must have wondered, if only fleetingly, if this was in fact the best time to be heading out on a voyage around Cape Horn. Nantucketers had good reason to be superstitious. Their lives were governed by a force of terrifying unpredictability, the sea. Due to a constantly shifting network of shoals, including the Nantucket Bar just off the harbor mouth, the simple act of coming to and from the island was an often harrowing and sometimes catastrophic lesson in seamanship. Particularly in winter, when storms were the most violent, wrecks occurred almost weekly. Buried throughout the island were the corpses of anonymous seamen who had washed up on its wave-thrashed shores. Nantucket, which means faraway land in the language of the island's native inhabitants, the Wampanoag, was a mound of sand eroding into an inexorable ocean, and all its residents, even if they had never left the island, were all too aware of the inhumanity of the sea. Nantucket's English settlers, who began arriving in 1659, had been mindful of the sea's dangers. They had hoped to support themselves not as fishermen, but as farmers and sheep herders on this grassy, pond-speckled crescent without wolves. But as the increasing size of the livestock herds, combined with a growing number of farms, threatened to transform the island into a wind-blown wasteland, Nantucketers inevitably looked seaward. Every fall, hundreds of right whales appeared to the south of the island and remained until the early spring. So named because they were the right whale to kill, right whales grazed the waters off Nantucket much like seagoing cattle, straining the nutrient-rich surface of the ocean through the bushy plates of baleen in their perpetually grinning mouths. While English settlers at Cape Cod and eastern Long Island had already been hunting right whales for decades, no one on Nantucket had had the courage to pursue the whales in boats. 
Instead, they left the harvesting of whales that washed up onto the shore, known as drift whales, to the Wampanoag. Around 1690, a group of Nantucketers was standing on a hill overlooking the ocean where some whales were spouting and playing with one another. One of the onlookers nodded toward the whales in the ocean beyond. There, he asserted, is a green pasture where our children's grandchildren will go for bread. In fulfillment of his prophecy, a Cape Codder by the name of Ichabod Paddock was soon thereafter lured across Nantucket Sound to instruct the islanders in the art of killing whales. Their first boats were only twenty feet long, and they launched them from the beaches along the island's south shore. Typically, a whaleboat's crew was comprised of five Wampanoag oarsmen with a single white Nantucketer at the steering oar. Once they'd killed the whale, they towed it.